Okay? There are several that are still missing. We understand that. And by the way, that's your job, right, to contact those that you know that should be in the, in the pew in front of you or beside you or around the room from you and just let them know, hey, that we're thinking about you and we're praying for you. But it's good to see some that we haven't seen for a while. And I'm glad you're back from your trips or your vacations or your whatever, right? And it's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. Boy, I tell you what, this is going to be a tough crowd this morning. I can tell already, right? <laughs> Open your Bibles, if you would, please. First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read the same passage that we actually read last week, verses 1 through 10 of First Thessalonians chapter 5. So I'm going to invite you, if you would, please, to stand with me in reverence to the Word of God as we read. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says this, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that, I, that ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken, are drunken in the night. And let us, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says, Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here to your house this morning. And I thank you for the faithfulness of your people. And we thank you that some of the vacant spots are beginning to fill in again. And, Lord, I pray that that would pick up as the year progresses and that we would become more excited once again for serving you. And remember the purpose uh, for which we gather and uh, the name by which we're called. And, Lord, we come today in that precious name, the name of our Savior Jesus Christ, to ask you to meet with us in a very special way. Lord, we would not come together just to go through the motions or even for the social aspects of our services here. Rather, we've come very specifically, intentionally, to meet with you who are the Lord of hosts, the true and living Lord. God, we want you to be here, and we claim your promise that where two or three are gathered together in your name, that there you would be in the midst. Lord, we want to go beyond that and ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us each that which we need. You know where our battles lie. You know the things that we're struggling with. You know our weaknesses. And so, Lord, we commit all those things into your hands, and we ask only that you minister to us this morning, that you give us that which we need, our manna from heaven, if you will. And then, Lord, that you would challenge us from your word where there are things that need to be changed. I pray that we will be obedient. And as your vessel today, Father, I ask you to fill my mouth and anoint my spirit, Lord, that I may be used of you. I want to pray the same for all of those that hear, that everyone would hear with obedient hearts and ears, and that your name would be exalted in all of us. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as Savior, that they would come and trust you before the day's over. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, folks. You can be seated. Can you believe that we're already in the second week of 2017? No, really. Some of you, I know, slept through last week, but this is the second Sunday of the year. Only 50 more weeks until 2018, right? <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Are you ready to make this year, 2017, the best that it can be in the Lord Jesus Christ? 
You see, we actually have a lot to say about how a year goes, not so much uh, as to the circumstances of our lives. We know that James says, ye know not what shall be on the morrow. And the 27th chapter of the book of Proverbs, the Bible tells us, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And so I'm certainly not encouraging this morning that we try to be prognosticators, uh, guessing what God is going to do in our lives through the course of the year. We do, however, have a lot to do with how we look at the circumstances of our lives. We also control to some degrees the intentional behaviors, lifestyle decisions, if you will, that God tells us in his word will make our lives richer and fuller and more satisfying. Last week, we actually started a message that was entitled simply where to look in the new year. As is so often the case, however, I was not able to finish the message, wasn't able to finish everything that I believe the Lord gave me, and so we've carried it over to this week. Today I want to continue on with what I pray will be very practical advice, if you want to call it that. When it comes from the Scriptures, you understand it's not advice, it is the Word of God. But this is advice from the Scriptures about what you can do to make 2017 a better year. My personal prayer is that we'll be much closer to the Lord Jesus by the end of the year than I am right now. I'm also praying the same for you. I'm praying that this will be the year that the Lord really does a work in our church and transforms us fully into exactly what he wants us to be so that our community may see Christ here. At every pastor's heart is a desire for growth. I want to see more people here, and that's just being quite honest. I want to see our children's ministries take off. I'd love to have a vibrant, exciting young adult ministry. Who doesn't want to see the nursery full, right? We're excited about all of that. But in short, I believe that we can see this church grow as never before if we'll look in the right direction. Obviously, I want us as a church to magnify Jesus more effectively. I'd love to see more faithfulness among our people and deeper and broader spiritual maturity. I could go on and on about all of that. Suffice it to say that I'm praying for a better year. I want to invite you to be a part of it. I believe the text that we've read this morning gives us some direction about what we ought to be looking for as, uh, uh, in terms of these successes. I appreciated Brother Ball's lesson this morning in Sunday school classes. He was talking about being a success. And once again, it just kind of dovetailed with what I want to bring to you this morning. So where we ought to be looking for the real successes in our lives as believers and as our life as a church. Last week we talked about looking behind you and looking above you and looking around you. Today I'm going to be getting a little bit more personal as I attempt to challenge you from the Word of God to look within you. Ultimately, all of us, or all of this, will lead to a forward look into 2017 and beyond if the Lord tarries His coming. Let's begin this morning here in verse number 8 of our text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 8 says this, But let us who were of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. If we really want the next year, the year 2017, which we've already begun, we're already well into, in fact, if we really want it to be different, then we need to begin by examining ourselves and making sure that we are what we ought to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible invokes or encourages us many times to look within ourselves and to examine ourselves. If we go to the end of the Old Testament, to the Psalms, the 26th Psalm beginning in verse 2 says this, Examine me, O Lord. Now this is the prayer, you understand, of the psalmist. He says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my hearts. 
and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers. I have hated the congregation of evildoers, and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell all of thy wondrous works. I believe that the, the keys, if you will, to being faithful and effective in our witness for the Lord, proclaiming all of his wondrous works, is an understanding of who we are with relationship to Christ on the inside. Galatians chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, But for if a man think himself to be something when he's not... Don't you love the way the, the Bible just kind of beats around the bush, right? It just, it just kind of, no, it doesn't. It speaks to us rather directly sometimes. Uh, in Galatians, he says, If a man think himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Now, what he's talking about there, folks, is not necessarily working to gain our salvation. We understand that the Scripture is very plain on that. Our salvation is by grace alone, by faith, through the finished work of, in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Everything that we are in him is in him. It's by his works. It is the applied righteousness of Christ. And we'll be looking at that later on. But there's also a, a practical side of our Christianity. If we are all that we profess to be, if we really think that we are something in the Lord, then it ought to show itself in our works, and we ought to be able to prove that to the world that lives around us. So we begin this, by the way, by putting on the armor of God. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Many of you will recognize in this particular passage an almost direct quote from another of the Apostle Paul's writings, obviously writing under the Spirit of God, the influence and the direction, the inspiration of the Spirit of God, in Ephesians chapter 6, where the Bible commands us to put on the armor of God. The Bible says there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand." Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with perseverance and supplication for all saints. Obviously, in this particular passage, God is speaking to us about the armor of preparation, how we're supposed to go forth into the world. And if you'll remember, the illustration here is of a Roman soldier as they would prepare to go forth to battle. There were certain parts of the armament that they would, with which they would dress themselves before they would uh, dare to go out onto the battlefield. So the question arises, this, by the way, is a reminder to us, uh, that we ought to be dressed every morning before we go out, right? That's always a good, uh, a good suggestion, especially when it's 32 degrees outside when you go out. But we're not talking about the physical uh, dress. We're talking about the spiritual armor that God has commanded us to dress ourselves with. Uh, obviously, we don't have time this morning to go into a detailed examination of the armor of God. Perhaps we'll do that at another time. But I do just want to kind of remind you uh, what these elements of the armor are. The first one, of course, is the, is the girdle of truth. Uh, the Bible tells us in John chapter 8 and verse 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. 
We know that the basis of all that we are and all of our defense against the attacks of the enemy and all of our offense against the, uh, the, 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 prince of the, prince, uh, the prince of this world and uh, the principalities and powers that are in this world is based on the truth of the Word of God. That is that we know the truth of God's Word, that we exist within the truth of God's Word. Uh, you see, it's not enough to know the truth if you're not in the truth. And so we are to dress ourselves with the truth. That is, we are to be a person of truth as opposed to a person of deceit. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, he says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And so we are truthful people. We are people of the truth, right? Since we are pre- uh, people of the word, we are people of the truth. And God says that we are, to, we are to arm ourselves with that. And then he also talks about the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness there in Ephesians chapter 4 and mentions it also here in, in uh, the, uh, the passage that we've read in First Thessalonians. Only here it calls it the breastplate of faith and love. Uh, that's not an inconsistency, by the way. Faith and love is what produces the righteousness of Christ that is within us. We're talking here about the applied righteousness of Christ, Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, but which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And so faith, we receive the righteousness of God. We receive the righteousness of Christ. It is applied to us as a breastplate of defense against the attacks of the enemy. But I believe there's also a practical side to that righteousness. You understand that positional righteousness is only of value to the world that we live in when it becomes practical, when we live it out when we actually go forth as righteous servants of a righteous God. And so we have in Romans chapter 6 and verse 13 the command, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And so we've got the breastplate of righteousness. I love the shoes, don't you? the shoes of the preparation of the gospel. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't just call it the shoes of the gospel, but rather the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is that we are to be prepared to present the gospel of peace. That, by the way, and here's a shameless uh, commercial for those of you who uh, have been with us on Wednesday nights. We're going through a series of practical lessons on how to be soul winners on purpose, going out and talking to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, preparing ourselves with the gospel. And so it's the preparation for the, of the gospel of peace. First Peter chapter 3 says this in verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you uh, with meekness and fear. So it's being ready to carry forth the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, recognizing that that is our responsibility, not just the responsibility of the preachers and the missionaries, right? That all of us have a responsibility to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We also have, of course, in Ephesians chapter 4, the shield of faith, that which defends us from the attacks and the fiery darts of the wicked. We have the helmet of salvation. By the way, let me just pause here and say, if you're not saved, none of the rest of it makes any difference, right? If you don't have the helmet of salvation, if you're not in Jesus Christ, if your sins are not washed away, then you're just waiting for an imminent blow to the head. It's going to come. 
sooner or later, right? And so we put on the helmet of salvation. We know that our salvation is in the Lord, and we rest in Him, and we trust in Him, and we know that He is our defense and our shield at all times. We have the offensive weapon of the sword of the Spirit, which all of you know is the Word of God. And I remind you once again that I'm glad I'm a part of a church that believes in the Bible. It uses the Bible for the purpose for which it was intended. It is our offensive weapon. It's the, it's the weapon that we use to go forth and conquer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then always I want to remind you that sometimes we leave out that last verse in Ephesians chapter 6, praying always in the Spirit. And so praying always is an important component of the armor. A lot of times we put on the peripheral pieces, but we don't ask the Lord to go with us. We don't seek his blessing on that which we do. And so for that reason, many times we, are, we, we fail in the battle. What I'm trying to tell you, folks, is that if we'll put on the armor of peace, if we'll prepare ourselves with the armor of God as it commands us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, our entire outlook on the next year will be completely different. And we'll be a people that God can use. But beyond that, I believe that the second thing that we need to do is to yield to full holiness. Now, this is kind of the meat of the message, and this is where I'm kind of hurrying to get to because this is what I really want to talk to you about this morning. How can we govern our behavior so that we reflect the righteousness of Jesus Christ? How do we make practical decisions about what we ought to do and what we ought not to do? You understand that the Bible tells us that we are to redeem the time for the days are evil. We know that we have a limited time left on this earth, and it's fully my belief that the Lord could come this year. I mentioned that last week when we were looking up to the returning king. I believe that, in fact, I'm a little bit surprised he didn't come already, right? But he could come this year. He could come uh, at any time, and we need to be prepared to receive him. But if we're going to do that, then we need to be effective and faithful servants of His while we're here on the earth. The person that is not effectively serving God and is not living or yielding his life to full holiness is not one who's truly watching for the coming of the Lord. So we go back to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, actually, or chapter 5, excuse me. I want to go here. The Bible says in verse 9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but obtain, to obtain salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they that sleep in the uh, sleep in the night, verse seven says, and they that are drunken in the night are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober. And then it goes on into uh, the armor of God. So we are to yield ourselves to full holiness. The Bible says it this way in the book of First Timothy, chapter four, verses seven and eight. But refuse profane and old wise fables. You guys thought I made that up, didn't you? That's actually in the Bible. Refuse profane and old wise fables and exercise thyself rather unto what? Unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Now, let me just pause here and say this. I don't necessarily believe in doing New Year's resolutions because so many times they are wrought up of the flesh and too many times they serve as a source of discouragement. I do believe in improving yourself and and trying to do better uh, and trying to serve the Lord better. But I will say this. A lot of people make a New Year's resolution to exercise themselves bodily when too few believers make the resolution to exercise themselves spiritually, right? You need to be sure that you're not getting the cart before the horse. Now, it's important. It's good. In fact, I'm noticing this morning as I'm walking up and down the Did you know I walk up the stairs and I'm too winded to sing? Right? There's something wrong about that. I mean, you know, that's just not right. And so there's some bodily exercise that's needed there, and it profits a little. But godliness is profitable unto all things. 
having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So we need to exercise ourselves unto godliness. So how can we determine what things are pleasing to God? How can we change the way that we live in the coming year? I'm so glad that you asked, right? Uh, I, oh, I guess I asked you. Well, I'm going to give you four tests this morning, if you give me opportunity, four tests by which you can determine the things that you ought to do and the things that you ought not to do. The first one is what I call the glorification test. The glorification test. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do. Now, I'm not sure, but the last time I checked, uh, at least to my understanding of the English language, when it says whatsoever you do, or as we would say in modern English, whatever you do, doesn't that include everything you do? Is there anything that's not included in whatever? That's why young people today use that expression, right? Whatever. Well, I don't think they mean that necessarily. But whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's all to be done unto His glory. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11 says it this way. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that, in God, that God in all things may be glorified. Did you catch that? that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, in whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what's the first test? The first test when I am considering doing or not doing anything, is this action that I am considering something that I as a believer, as a child of God, ought to engage in? The first question that I ought to ask myself is whom does it glorify? Whom does it exalt? This is part of what's involved in doing things in the name of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatsoever you do in word or deed. Once again, everything that we do is included either as a word or a deed. He said, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that we just tack on Jesus' name at the end of it any more than that's what it means when we pray in Jesus' name. You understand, when you pray in Jesus' name, you're asking something as if Jesus himself were asking it. And when you live in Jesus' name, then you are living as if Jesus himself were doing it or saying it, as the case may be. So we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, and in the process it says giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So whom does it glorify? In other words, I ought to ask myself the question, will this behavior make Jesus famous? Or does it bring reproach to his name? Does it hinder my testimony as a believer? Does it make Jesus look bad? In Romans chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, the Bible says, Thou that makest thy boast of the law. Now, this is addressed primarily to the Jews, but there's obviously an application here to those of us who are in Christ. Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. As it is written, and it continues on in that vein, talking about the fact that many people have a bad taste in their mouth about the Lord Jesus Christ, or in this particular passage about God of the Old Testament, because of the behavior of those that wear God's name. And so the point that I'm trying to make is when we do something, we ought to do it in order to not blaspheme the name of Christ or cause the Gentiles to blaspheme his name, or in order not to allow the world to think ill of him. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 23, And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, 
saith the Lord God, and I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. Now, by the way, if you read the rest of the context in Ezekiel chapter 36, essentially what God is saying, since you did not willingly glorify not my name before the heathen, I'm going to glorify my name in you by chastisement and judgment. That's not where we want to live, right? So in order to make 2017 a better year as far as spiritual maturity is concerned, we need to learn to ask ourselves the question about anything that we are pondering. Whom will this glorify? Does this advance or exalt the name of Christ? Now, we understand that this is not the idea that I'm talking here is not the same as suffering reproach for his name. I know that there are some people who despise the name of Jesus Christ inherently. In other words, they are enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and those are the ones that will persecute those who would live godly in Christ Jesus. We understand all that. But I'm just talking about those of us who sometimes uh, disregard our testimony and make decisions based on what I want to do rather than what will glorify the name of Jesus Christ. And so the old question is a good question to ask, what would Jesus do in this particular situation? I'm trying to encourage you to proactively seek to do only that which will exalt the Savior. So that's test number one, the exaltation test. Are you ready for test number two? Aren't you glad this isn't a real written test in school, right? Second test, how can I, how can I try the things that I'm considering? This is what I'm calling the expedience test. This is one that I've had questions about, and so hopefully we can explain it to you. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 says this, All things are lawful for, to, for me, or unto me. Now, by the way, let me just pause here and say that what Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Spirit here as he writes these things, when he says all things are lawful unto me, in essence what he's saying is there's not anything that if you're a child of God, when you do it, will cause you not to be a child of God anymore. All right? There's not anything that you can do that will cause you to lose the salvation or cause God to love you less. So where our, our works, our salvation not dependent on our works, neither is our uh, keeping our salvation dependent on our works. But he said, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, we'll look at the second part of that verse in just a moment. But the first part says, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. What does that mean? Well, the word expedient comes from a Greek word that has the idea of carrying along with others. In other words, you join hands with somebody else and you lay hold on a burden and between the two of you, you carry, or the three of you, or the four of you, or the eight of you, or however many, you carry that burden. It's, so it's something that helps, something that is profitable, something that makes better. So in other words, if I am going along the road and I see you struggling with a burden, if I will come alongside of you and lend a hand and help to lift that burden and carry it along with you, then that is expediting your journey. It's so expedient. Now, what, how this applies to our lives as believers is that anything that I'm considering doing, anything that I'm looking at as a possible action, I need to ask myself, does this, is this expedient? Is this something that will actually help me along in my journey? Is this going to be something that will actually aid me in my Christian walk? Is it something that's going to make me stronger in Christ? Or, uh, by the same token, is this something that will encourage you and help you? along in your journey in the Lord Jesus Christ. All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. There are some things that just don't help me grow in the Lord, do they? And we have to be honest with ourselves on those things. The third test is the dominance test. The dominance test. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, again, returning there, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful unto me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I'll not be brought under the power of any. The question to ask under the dominance test is, does it control me? Is it addicting? Does it dominate my life? Has it taken over? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27 says this, But I keep my body and bring it into subjection. Now, by the way, I'll pause here and just say that there are a lot of people that have taken 1 Corinthians 9, 27 in the context that it's given in and promoted things like self-flagellation, you know, taking whips and beating yourselves over the back uh, in the morning when you get up, take your shower and those kinds of things. I'm not advocating that by any means, all right? I don't, necess- I don't believe that's what the Scripture is te- teaching here. I believe that the Scripture is teaching allowing our bodies, allowing our lives to be dominated by the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ that's in us and not giving ourselves everything that we want. Have I told you recently that yourself can be a mighty daunting taskmaster? Very cruel in his intention. By the way, he's never satisfied, he or she, as the case may be. Self is never pleased uh, along the way. But does it control me? He says, I keep under my body. I bring it under subjection, lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself should become a castaway. Paul's fear in life, if you can call it that, was that he may have preached to someone else and by allowing himself to give, give vent or yield to the desires of his flesh or his own uh, uh, earthly desires, uh, he would lose that effectiveness, that testimony for the Lord in the world. So he said, I'm not going to yield myself to anything that would control you. Can I remind you that we know that sin enslaves without half trying? You ever notice, parents, those of you that have had young children and those of you that are already dealing with the grandchildren thing, you ever notice that there are some things that you don't have to teach a kid, right? Now, you have, to te- you have to teach them to say please and thank you and yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and those things that we used to consider common courtesy, right? That's a whole different sermon. One of these days I'll preach that one. Uh, but those are things that we have to teach, right? But there's some things that you don't have to teach, screaming for your own way. They just kind of pick that up naturally, don't they? Somebody said they get it from watching their daddies. I don't know if that's true or not. But but you understand, uh, those things just are inherent to the nature of the beast, if you will. You don't have to teach them to sin. And did you know that the more you yield yourself sin, the more to sin, the more enslaving it becomes. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, the Bible says this, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants, now that word servants is not just talking about a hired servant, he's talking about a bond slave, someone that has no choice but to do the, the bidding of his or her master. And it says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. John chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus answering them, or answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the slave or the servant of sin. There are many other places in the Scripture that we can go, but the point that I'm making, folks, here is that sin is what controls us. One of the clear evidences of sinful behavior is its ability to dominate or control or become addictive in our lives. Godliness, on the other hand, must be exercised. It must be trained. So we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Refuse profane and old wise fables and exercise thyself, rather, 
unto godliness. Acts chapter 24 and verse 16, Paul uh, saying, Here, herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. He says, I have to exercise at that. I have to work at it. It's not something that comes easily. In fact, if you'll read 1 Corinthians, Paul says, The things that I want to do, those things I don't do, and the things that I know I ought to do, those things I don't do. But the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. Now, that's my paraphrase, but you understand what I'm saying, I hope. Right? (laughs) The point is uh, that sin and the sinful nature will control us if we'll allow it to. We have to exercise ourselves unto godliness. We have to determine who has the right to control our lives, who is the master whom we serve. Remembering all the time that only one has the right to control me, and that is Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, I would like to add on to the end of this, and this is not inspired scripture, but I think it's true anyway. Quit trying. Right? You cannot serve God and mammon, so just quit trying. You can't have a foot in the world and a foot in Jesus Christ. You can't serve self and Jesus Christ. You can't serve the desires of the flesh and serve Jesus Christ. You can't serve God and money. You've got to make up your mind. And Jesus is the one who has the right to control us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 24, Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. That is your purpose, that is your goal, that is your direction in life as a child of God to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the third test, the fourth and final test. How do I determine how to glorify Christ in the new year? And this is what I'm calling the edification test. How does it affect others around me? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, the Bible says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not, is the last phrase here. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Now, that doesn't mean in verse 24 that you're supposed to be trying to get the other guy's wealth, right? But rather that you're supposed to be advancing his wealth or her wealth, that you're supposed to be looking out for the good of others. So one of the questions that I need to ask myself in considering any kind of behavior, whether it be action or reaction, is how this will affect others that live around me. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Let me pause here and say, or ask a question if I may. Anybody here offended by tacos? Praise the Lord. I was scared there for a minute. I was going to have to give up tacos, and you know that's going to be hard. Uh, the, The point that we make, obviously, is that one of the questions we ought to ask is, is will it offend a brother? Now, I want to remind you, offend doesn't mean hurt their feelings in the biblical sense, okay? It doesn't mean, oh, well, you know, he said something that I didn't like, or he looked at me funny. Or he didn't shake my hand or he sat on my pew. That's not true offense. That's, that's, that's something that problem, uh, the problem of the person who is offended, they need to get those things right. Uh, but what I'm talking about here is something that actually hinders the ability of a brother to serve Jesus Christ. Causes him to stumble is something that offends. And so Romans chapter 14 and verse 21, It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Everything that I do, especially in my public life as a child of God, ought to be based in love for the brethren. 
The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, For brethren, you've been called under liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But catch the last phrase, but by love serve one another. By love serve one another. So the question that I ask is what will intentionally strengthen those around me in Jesus Christ? One of the major determining factors in the behavior in my life individually, and yours as well if you're a child of God, is how is it going to affect the rest of the body of faith? How is it going to affect my brother or my sister that sits down from the pew for me uh, on a Sunday morning? How is it going to affect the rest of those who are trying to serve Christ? How is it going to affect the new believer? How is it going to affect one that has known the Lord Jesus Christ and walked with Him for years? Will what I am doing intentionally strengthen those that are around me? Romans chapter 14, verse 19, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and the things wherewith one may edify another. Now, the word edify simply means to build up or to make stronger. So the question I ask is, how will what I am doing or what I am saying strengthen you in Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 26, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's not the verse I wanted, but it's a good one anyway. right? Let it be, all things be done unto edifying is the one that I'm looking for. Now, by the way, I just want to throw this in. This is free. It doesn't cost you anything. But I have the opportunity to put it here, so I'll put it in here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You can't... Exhort one another. You can't edify one another if you're not here. All right? Enough said. I'm not going to preach on that. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that. But the point is that part of my calling, part of my responsibility as a child of God is that I'm supposed to be lifting you up and encouraging you and strengthening you in your walk with the Lord. Ephesians 4 and verse 16, From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now let me cut to the chase, if I may, on Ephesians chapter 4. What that is saying is when you're not here, the whole body hurts. You need what you get from the rest of the body, and we need what we get from you. And so we encourage one another and we strengthen one another, and we do all this unto edifying. Now, all of that to say... As we wrap up this morning, where are you to look? You're to look within you by putting on the armor of God and yielding to full holiness. And in doing so, and putting all these other things together that we've already talked about in the last couple of weeks, we begin to look ahead of us. We look forward to what God is going to do. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said later, it's not as though I had already attained. It's not as though I'd already reached the goal. It's not like I'm already there. And so it's my prayer, as I mentioned to you in the introduction to this message, and my prayer that this year, 2017, will be a year of more zeal for souls on the part of God's people, that we'll see more souls personally. When I want to win more souls for Christ. I want to see you win souls for Christ. I'm praying for a year of true growth, both numerically and spiritually. I like to see all the slots filled in, right? all the empty places on the pews. How about if I challenge each one of you to fill a pew? That would be a challenge, right? Some of you have already got it done, just bringing your family. <laughs> That's not fair. You've got to fill another one. No, not really. But I want to see a, true, a year of true growth numerically and spiritual. In short, I would, I'm praying that God will give us in 2017 a year of true revival, that our love for him would be renewed, that our love for one another would be renewed, that our love for the lost that are out in the world around us would be renewed and we'll remember the purpose of, 
for which we're here, the name by which we're called, and the power of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what it's all about? Amen. Will you stand with me, please, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Father, we thank you for what you've done in us and for us and through us already. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for uh, the truth that is revealed in it and uh, the things that we like and the things that we don't like. Lord, I pray that we would truly be obedient and yielded unto you, that you would do in us now in the invitation time exactly what you want to do. and You draw us to yourself and we would make commitment to you. I pray that if there's any here, anyone here tonight to, or this morning that doesn't know you as Savior, that this would be the day that they would come and trust you as Savior. It would allow us to show them from the Scriptures how they can be born again. Mainly, Lord, I just want to pray that your would be accomplished and your purpose uh, advanced in every one of your people. In Jesus' name.